Bienvenidos a todos. You are listening to the Paseo Podcast, where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community. My name is Joshua Smezo de Leon, and I want to thank you for downloading this episode. If you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are streamed, give this podcast a like and subscribe to it. It makes a world of difference. We started this podcast as a way to bring attention to the diverse and vibrant stories that make up the Puerto Rican communities here in Paseo Boricua in Chicago and around the world. From La Isla to the diaspora, we hope you enjoy what you hear. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Paseo Podcast at Paseo Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram if you want to keep up with us. If you want to follow me, I'm at uh, JS De Leon on Twitter. Uh, you can also pitch a story or volunteer with the podcast by reaching out to us on our website, paseomedia.org. And if you hate social media but love YouTube, uh, we also launched a new YouTube channel where you can watch the interview portions of our episodes. Just type in Paseo Podcast and uh, we'll pop right up. And uh, while you're there, like our videos and subscribe to our channel, of course. Um, our goal right now, our current goal, is to get to 100 subscribers, so help us out. For this week's episode, we welcome back to the show City Bureau journalist Justin Agrello. Justin reports on housing for City Bureau, and uh, he and the housing team published a report on Chicago's looming housing crisis. Uh, they spoke with Chicago residents facing eviction to better understand the impacts the pandemic is having on their ability to keep a roof over their heads. So we're going to talk about Chicago's eviction crisis, talk about who was highlighted in this piece and their testimonials. And Justin is also going to share some solutions that can help you or anyone else you may know who is facing eviction. But first, I wanted to follow up on last week's episode when we looked back at Puerto Rico's Black history to start off Black History Month. Uh, we ended up um, you know, going back in time. Uh, but uh, this week, we're going to come to the present. And I actually had come across this article in Travel Pulse. Uh, the article was titled, How Visitors Can Explore Puerto Rico's African Influences. So very much like a tourist type of article. But um, outside of the, the normal uh, Puerto Rico tourism articles you'd see. So this article was mostly focused on uh, things you can do on La Isla that are tied to our African roots. So the article focused on three things in particular that would not be what they are today without African influences. And those three things were fine art, music, and uh, food. So why bring this up, you might ask? Uh, well, there are a lot of Boricuas out there that really lean into their European roots as a part of their identity, while at the same time disregarding their African ones. So now with, uh, you know, Puerto Rico's uh, history going back to the 16th, 17th and 18th century, you know, those colonial periods, well, we're still in a colonial period, but uh, those colonial periods uh, in particular are responsible for much of La Isla's prominent European influences. But there were cultural contributions from the hundreds of thousands of Africans who arrived to the island via forced migration during that same period that are no less significant. Um, so let's review uh, what some of those things are and um, what you can do now that uh, would not be possible without our African ancestry. So first up, fine arts. The article states that Puerto Rico features some of the world's finest museums and several now feature permanent African cultural exhibits. 
the Museo de Arte de Ponce, Museo de las Americas, and the Museo de Historia de Caguas each offer outstanding African art collections and presentations. In addition, Luisa's Samuel Lin Studio is dedicated to artwork based on Laila's African influences. The article goes on to state that one of Puerto Rico's newest African art exhibits, Negro A X. It's an art exhibit at uh, Casa Afro in Piñones. Uh, it highlights 20 Afro-Puerto Rican artists. Uh, Celso Gonzalez, uh, an artist and the exhibit's curator, uh, was quoted in the article as saying, the exhibit takes the pulse of an Afro-Caribbean aesthetic representing us and shedding light on our experiences, dreams, and conversations. Um, so if you're on La Isla, those are definitely um, a number of museums and exhibits that you can take take in and uh, visit. Um, so definitely put those on your on your travel list or your travel itinerary um, when you, whenever you're, we can go to Puerto Rico. I know here in Chicago, the band was recently lifted um, from Chicago to Puerto Rico and vice versa. So that's, that's really nice to see that we're making some progress there. Um, next up, food. Uh, several popular Puerto Rican dishes, including mofongo, bacalaitos y pasteles are all based in African cuisine. If you find yourself in PR, you can experience authentic African-influenced food at El Boren de Lula. Uh, it's a uh, James Beard-recognized uh, eatery in Loisa, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, but it's located on the island's northeast coast. This is especially important because Loisa also features Puerto Rico's largest black population, which, as the article mentions, is a legacy of its 16th century settlement by Yoruba people from the West African countries of Nigeria, Benin, and Toga. Loisa, in particular, is celebrated for its Afro-Puerto Rican music, arts, dance, and culinary traditions. And speaking of music, that's going to be our final bucket here that was highlighted in the article. Um, Puerto Rico's Afro-Puerto Rican heritage includes breathtaking demonstrations of bomba, which is, for those that don't know, if you're hearing the term bomba for the first time or if you've heard it in passing in conversation, um, it is a rhythm uh, that is played by two or more drums guided by the dancer's feet. The article mentions that visitors can learn about the dance at uh, the Don Rafael Cepeda School of Bomba and Plena, uh, one of several studios where guests can learn about African-influenced dances and traditions. Um, we also have a few here in Paseo Boricua where you can learn things um, like how to play, how to dance, uh, history of, of dances and, and music um, that make, uh, make up Bomba and Plena today. Um, among other things. So we've got a lot of talent here on Paseo, tons of talent on La Isla, um, throughout the diaspora, really. So if you are part of a Puerto Rican community or aware of a Puerto, Rin Puerto Rican community um, that's nearby, uh, chances are you might have some type of bomba or plena classes. So it might be worth looking into. Um, but anyway, um, might be worth looking into. The article also quotes Dr. Marta Morena Vega, who is the co-founder of Corredor Afro and founder of New York's Caribbean Cultural Center and African Diaspora Institute. Uh, and she was quoted as saying whether the Puerto Rican society is aware or unaware or even accepting of this fact, our culture and personality are deeply rooted in Afrocentric elements such as family, spirituality, and celebration through dance and song. 
She also went on to say the creative aspects of our culture is reflected in our typical Puerto Rican accent, in music like salsa, bomba, plena, reggaeton, and even trap music. It's a short and sweet article, but it hits on a lot of good points. And again, it's like a Puerto Rico tourism article, but it's very out of the ordinary um, because we normally see the more Eurocentric uh, parts of Puerto Rican culture highlighted um, or, more, you know, some of the more like superficial things. Um, of course, any like anything that encourages people to really enjoy La Isla and the beauty that exists there is amazing. Uh, but we can't forget about the multitude of layers that make Puerto Rico the special place and the culture, the special culture that it is today. Um, so we can't lift up one and disregard the other. Uh, we have to make sure that we're making space for everything that makes us Boricua. So definitely a good article to, to give a read to. I'll make sure to, to attach it to our show notes. So if you want to read it, uh, you can click the link and, and, and give it a, a nice read. Um, but again, our, our culture would not be what it is today without our African roots. And like I said last week, when someone talks about being Puerto Rican as being separate from BIPOC, let them know that the pages in our history books may be white, but our people and our culture are far from that. So shifting gears a little bit here, um, I want to talk about uh, you all listening. Um, we love hearing from you, whether that's via email or social media. You know, we wouldn't be anywhere if it wasn't for you all listening. So I wanted to share a few parts of this really, really nice email uh, that someone sent to us uh, recently. Uh, the title of the email was Love Listening to the Paseo Podcast. And this message is from Betty. And she said in this email that, um, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll read it uh, verbatim here. Um, again, these are just a couple of parts of the email, but um, she, she had written in and said, uh, quote unquote, uh, thank you so very much for keeping your listeners current on news and events affecting Puerto Ricans in Chicago and everywhere, really. I'm 66 years old, born in Chicago, and currently live in the Humble Park area. There is so much I didn't know about Puerto Rico, perhaps because my parents didn't talk about it very much. They were extremely poor over there and came to Chicago for, quote unquote, a better life. Well, I started listening to the Paseo podcast back in December, starting with episode 39, then jumping around to various episodes, including your interview with Maricel Vera and her book, The Taste of Sugar. I just started listening to the episodes in order, and I just finished listening to episode four, which was your interview with Jesse Fuentes. I've seen Jesse in the neighborhood, and I didn't even know. Shame on me. This is why your podcast is so important. You keep your listeners up to date on occurrences, people to know both here and in Puerto Rico. My sincere gratitude to you and the team at Paseo Podcast for providing this service to Chicago and the rest of the U.S. and PR. Gracias. This was really sweet. This is like a really sweet email to get. Um, definitely a, was a great way to start off my morning to, to read through this. Um, so thank you, Betty, for, for reaching out to the show. Really love hearing that you're enjoying um, what you're listening to. Uh, of course, if anyone else listening to this wants to email into the show, you can always do that by emailing paseopodcast at gmail.com. But again, shout out to you, Betty, for listening. Happy to have you as part of the Paseo Podcast Familia. Um, again, just really appreciate the, the kind words and the affirmation. Okay, that's everything. Let's jump into the interview with Justin. <laughs> 
Bienvenidos a todos. This is the Paseo Podcast. You are listening to this on whatever streaming platform you're listening to this on. So thank you. If you're watching us on YouTube, welcome to our channel. Give us a like and subscribe. Um, the date is February 6th, but again, that doesn't really matter because it's a podcast. So you're listening to this or watching this whenever, wherever you are. Ultimately, we're just happy you're here with us. And we're especially happy because we have a returning guest on the podcast today. We have Justin Agrello. He is a reporter at City Bureau. If you want to learn more about Justin, definitely check out episode 36 of the podcast where we go a bit deeper into his background and his journey through journalism. Uh, Justin, what are the quick hits? What should our audience know about you? Um, I'm a reporter. I cover housing for um, a nonprofit uh, journalism lab called City Bureau, which is based in um, Brownsville. Um, I'm from the Northwest side, like Humboldt Park, Logan Square. Um, yeah, and I'm Puerto Rican. So, so those are kind of like the the top hit right on you hit the checklist to become a guest on the paseo podcast <laughs> so <laughs> um mm -hmm. so so justin i wanted to have you back on the show because you know we were trading dms on twitter uh about some recent reporting that that you were working on um actually you and the city bureau housing team have been working on and a few days ago um there was a, a really stellar report in my opinion um and to give our listeners a bit of background um and I'm going to use your words here, Justin, but uh, last fall, City Bureau's housing team began speaking with uh, Chicago residents facing eviction to better understand the impacts the COVID-19 pandemic is having behind the closed doors uh, of their of their homes or their residences um, and basically giving a space and a platform that allows people and you interviewed seven people for this piece um, that allows those people to to share their their own experiences dealing um, with eviction, um, renting here in Chicago. Um, so it's a really interesting peek into what the state of housing is in our city. Um, so I just wanted to, before we get into, um, you know, the nitty gritty of that report, uh, I want to, I, I like starting off the show, not only with asking our guests to share a little bit about themselves, but love hearing about, especially people in the diaspora, you know, what part of Puerto Rico their family's from. So, uh, again, before we get into the report, let's talk about a little bit of your roots. So what part of Puerto Rico is your family from? My grandma's side, my mom's side is from um Baguas slash San Lorenzo. Um and then my dad's side is from Juncos. My they all lived on like in the campo, like on a farm their whole lives. All right. You know, uh my family <laughs> is from San Lorenzo. Work. Yeah. I feel we're in the montañas. We're the mon we're mountain hey. people. <laughs> uh -huh. Let's talk a little bit about this report. Um so there's this looming eviction crisis here in Chicago, and there was a lot of really good data that the City Bureau um, article shared. Um, could you give our listeners kind of a, a high level view? Um, of course, we'll we'll share the article in the show notes so people can you know read the article in full. But um, you know what what is the state of of housing right now in Chicago? Yeah, um, I think prior to the pandemic, um, experts were um describing eviction nationally and in chicago as as a as a crisis um like prior to the pandemic chicago was seeing about 22,000 evictions each year go through the court system um but that doesn't i think i said this in our last interview that doesn't capture the scale of eviction because um 
landlords don't necessarily need to use the court system in order to, to remove people, to displace them. They can use um, more aggressive means like um, threats of violence, intimidation, um, illegal lockouts. All of the people we spoke with for this story experienced some of that. Um, utility shutoffs, et cetera. Um, and so that was pre-pandemic. Um, and then obviously COVID has compounded every sort of social issue um, that we face. And so what people are predicting now, what the Lawyers Committee for Better Housing, which is um, a local legal aid, but they also do a lot of research. Um, they're, they're projecting that as soon as the eviction bans lift, that Chicago could see 21,000 evictions in a single month. So like essentially like what we would have got in one year, we could see in a month. But again, like that is, that is like the, the formal process of eviction right like that's the formal record like we don't really know how many people have already been displaced and we don't really i don't think we'll really grasp the full scale of um of the eviction crisis at least not immediately so i'm reading this i'm reading this article and there was a number thrown in there that said over 1500 chicago Mm -hmm. were hit with a residential eviction filing after the shelter in place order was implemented um and that's like that's I want to say I was like early March that that's or late mm-hmm. March that's uh, was implemented. Um, and some of the reasons for these evictions um, that landlords were stating were things like, you know, this tenant is uh, we're, evict- we're evicting this tenant because it's a direct threat to the health and safety of other tenants um, or, you know, this tenant is an immediate uh, uh, or immediate and severe risk to to the property. Um, but that based off of the stories I'm reading and the reports I'm reading, I don't get the sense that these residents that are being evicted by their landlords pose a severe risk to the property or to other tenants that reside in the property. So just curious to hear your thoughts. I mean, why do you think landlords are, are evicting people at such a high clip? Um, when the reality is most people probably can't pay their rent because the economy is in shambles because of the pandemic. You know, the, the work is not there. Um, so the money's not coming in. That that seems to be the the at the heart of a lot of these evictions. And yet landlords are leaning into this threat to property, threat to other tenants. Um, and I don't want to make a blanket statement and say there aren't tenants that may pose a risk to, to property or other tenants. But it, it, this strikes me as improbable that the a high majority of these eviction cases are are centered around a true threat to other people or or, or, or a, a property. So you know, what are some what are some of the, in your opinion? What are some of the things you think, uh, or some of the reasons you think uh, landlords are are evicting people at such a high rate? Yeah, and it's kind of I think people don't realize. I think if people know about the eviction moratorium, which not a lot of people do know, we spoke with over thirty people for this project, over thirty tenants. And a lot of them didn't realize that there was a ban on eviction, right? Like a lot of them didn't even really know. They were just sort of like living their lives and trying to survive. Um, but even the folks who do know about the eviction ban, they're sort of shocked to, to hear that like evictions are still being filed. Um, and I think landlords, there might be a, a variety of reasons why landlords are doing it, right? Like one of the reasons could be landlords know that the ban is going to lift eventually, right? And so they kind of want to get ahead of combat paperwork and get people out um, as soon as as the ban lifts and as soon as they legally can. Um, That could be one reason. Another reason is an eviction filing is, can be weaponized against um, black and brown folks, right? And low-income folks. 
um, eviction filing alone can prevent people from getting future housing, right? Like when you go to apply for an apartment, they check your background, they check your credit, and they check to see if you have any evictions on your record. And some applications already ask you, have you been evicted? Have you been filed against? And um, landlords will screen tenants that way, right? We'll, we'll use that as a way to sort of like discriminate against people, even if the tenant has beat their case, even if their case was thrown out, even if they shouldn't have been filed against in the first place. Um, and so an eviction filing, whether they're doing it to actually displace people or not, it's still a way to weaponize um, sort of like the, the law at, at black and brown people. I think some landlords um, want like view housing strictly as a business, right? Like as like a commodity to be sold and to be bought, right? And for renters, housing really isn't a commodity, right? Like it's a, it's a right, it's like what we need to, to live. Um, and so there's a very different, I wanna make a very different, I wanna make a clear distinction between like the interests of the landlord class and like the interests of like tenants, right? Like they have two very different interests, right? Like one interest is to make profit, the other, tenants are just trying to live, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think that in one of the stories I and mean, I can point people to is there's this story of this man named Matisse who was like a father of five. Um, and him and his wife had been housing, him and his family had been housing insecure for years. Like they were staying with family. They were sometimes staying in shelters. Um, and then right before the pandemic, they had sort of like hit um, um, a good spot. I, I can't think of the phrase, but like they hit a, a sweet spot in like their life where like they were able to secure an apartment um, and the and the person that they they rented the apartment from was actually a friend of Matisse's, like like sort of like a high, like a a person you went to like middle school with that you kind of like knew throughout the years. They weren't like super close, um, but Matisse is a truck driver. And then at the start of the pandemic, a lot of truck drivers, you know, people just weren't moving freight, right? And so he his hours got cut, and then you know he called his his you know landlord who happened to be this guy that he knew for years and let him know like hey like my hours have been cut I'm not going to be able to make the rent this coming month like but like I'm going to apply for unemployment and you know I'm, I'm going to get you your money right um and then I think Matisse missed like two months of rent and then the guy uh filed an eviction to evict him um under the because technically landlords aren't supposed to be filing evictions for um, missed rent, right? Like like you mentioned earlier, like the only sort of like ways that they can file an eviction or they're supposed to file an eviction right now is through like threats of safety or through like health reasons and like threats to the property. Um, and so that little sort of like technicality is how a lot of lemons are getting in. And then when the judge hears the case, the judge will decide, has this case, should this case have been filed, right? Um, but in the case of Matisse, like, when his landlord called him and was like, hey, like I I'm filed to evict you, like you gotta go, or the sheriff is gonna come and like put your stuff on the street. Matisse, like him and his family left in a hurry um, and they went to go live in a hotel, um, which is also a lie. Like the sheriff right now is not gonna come to anybody's house and evict them. A, it's winter, the sheriff doesn't really, the sheriff doesn't evict people in the winter. And B, um, the, the moratorium prevents the sheriff from being able to go to someone's house and kick them out. So the landlord lied, still filed the eviction, lied to him, said that the sheriff was gonna come get him out. And then I asked Matisse, like, if this is your friend, like, why would he, why did he do that? And he's like, you know, he really looked at it as a business. Like he looked at it as like, this isn't a friendship, like this is a business 
agreement and you your side of the deal has fallen through and so like now I'm gonna do what I gotta do right and so I think that's part of the reasons sure I do think landlords are in a bind like they are in a pinch especially small landlords um who maybe like have like you know just a two flat a three flat like they're also feeling the pandemic um and that is causing them to you know behave violently but I don't I would make the distinction that, you know, ultimately a, land, a property is someone's investment, right? It's not necessarily like, sure, your livelihood could be tied to your property, but it's also like a choice that you made to buy that property and to invest in it. And every investment has a risk. Just looking at the report out of, out of City Bureau, um, the article had mentioned that while the moratorium, uh, the eviction moratorium has reduced eviction filings by 77%, uh, it hasn't stopped landlords from forcing tenants out through these more aggressive means, like like you mentioned, like the sheriff's going to come to you. It's almost like the boogeyman, mm -hmm. like you're frightening people right. into doing what you want. Um, and it's it's all based in a lie. Um, so, yeah, things like uh, illegal lockouts, uh, harassments, um, you know, threats of violence, you know, stuff like that. Um, you know, uh, residents, renters are, are really getting the, the raw end of the deal. Um, and according to the City Bureau report, another the figure that, that was mentioned, um, it, it's been months that housing advocates across the city have been warning mm -hmm. of this looming eviction crisis, where as many as 31% of Illinois residents uh, could be evicted once these local, state, and federal protections expire, um, which is mind-boggling. Like, it, it, it sounds terrifying. Um, I wanted to focus, like, taking those numbers into, into consideration, I did want to talk about how this affects the Puerto Rican population, the uh, the Latina population, you know, um, the article does make a mention of like undocumented immigrants from, from that standpoint. Like if you um, are afraid of getting deported and you get hit with an eviction notice, I mean, you don't want to take this to court because, you know, again, you, you get deported, uh, you can get caught up in our awful immigration system. Um, so the stakes get that much higher. Looking at the Puerto Rican, you know, Latinx population as a whole, how is this looming eviction crisis impacting them? It's very common for Latinx people in Chicago to not have a lease, mm -hmm. to be on a month-to-month -month agreement, especially like folks who maybe their status is undocumented or they're like a mixed status family, et cetera. It's very common for folks to be on a month-to-month -month lease, which presents tenants with like a very puts them in like a very particular position because I think a lot of folks, at least from my own experience of like, my parents were always on a month of lease. And the idea was that um, they didn't want to get trapped. If like an emergency happened and they couldn't pay their rent, they wanted to be, you know, they, they wanted the option to immediately be able to double up. Right. And I think a lot of folks have, that's part of the reason too. Um, and so Block Club Chicago actually did a really good story on what they called invisible evictions in Logan Square and in, um, in Tilton and like how like Latina people were on these month to month leases and so that in turn made them very vulnerable to displacement because if you're on a month to month lease legally your landlord only has to give you 30 days to move right and they can give you those 30 days whenever they choose at the drop of a hat for whatever reason they want and so I think um, you know in places where where rents are skyrocketing like Humboldt Park, Logan Square, etc like if a landlord wants to sell their property or if they want to get a higher paying tenant in there they can just ask you to leave right and so when you add the layers of like um, the eviction crisis where you know tenants on month to month leases are very cash are typically people or actually I don't know this so I don't want to misspeak but like if you think of Latina people and the positions that they sort of like the work 
that they do in 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 our city, right? Many people who are in like um, hospitality, a lot of the, the people who lost jobs were were largely like Latino people, black and brown people, right? Um, and so when you add sort of like this, like all of these sort of um, things to like the storm, it, it places black and brown people in very like vulnerable positions and very um, in positions where um, they can be displaced easily. In terms of undocumented folks, um, because the story that I'm talking to you about is, is a part of a, of a larger package and there's a, there's a couple different stories in there. My colleague Alex Arriaga did a story on um, where she talked to some undocumented folks and what she found was that, you know, oftentimes undocumented people are, don't exert their rights in the way that, that they probably, maybe like they, like their housing rights specifically, right? Like they won't exert their housing rights because of the reasons you said, right? Like this fear of like getting in contact with a, a, a court system in the United States is very intimidating, right? Like there is a collective knowledge that like courtrooms are places of violence, right? Like there's sites of violence and it can be very, very scary to get, you know, a seemingly um, formal notice that says like, if you don't pay this, you have to go to court. And you know, like that process seems very intimidating for people, even folks who maybe are residents who do have status, right? Like that still, just like that knowledge that like, you know, this this country's so grimy that like, you know, I don't, I don't wanna risk it, right? Like I don't wanna risk going into this court and I don't wanna do it. I'd rather just double up and move. Um, and so I think, yeah, a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of Latinx people, a lot of Puerto Rican people too are, are very um, at risk for displacement um, because of like the jobs that they occupy because of the pandemic and then also like where they live in the city, right? Like if you think of Pilsen, the Logan Squares, the Humble Park, like these are very little villages, like these are very sort of like communities that are, we're already facing a lot of displacement pressures, right? From like speculator, speculators and like companies that want to come in and like buy the block um mm. and so like when you add the layer of like the pandemic i think it sort of like exacerbates all of that mm. no thanks for sharing that um you're absolutely right it's, a, it's like it's a everything's interconnected um and it's not just one issue it's a series of issues that lead to mm -hmm. this point where we have this issue bubbling up uh to the point where it's gonna pop and we could have a high, high amount of people just out on the street. And we're not just talking about individuals, mm -hmm. we're talking about families. Um, and out of no no decision of their own. You know, it's it's right. to be powerless in those moments. Just, you know, we we need a level of empathy in our government that transcends what we're doing right now. And and I, I think it needs to needs to get to a point where we're enacting policy that is for the many and not just for the few. Mm -hmm. and, and right now it, it seems like the government's looking out for the few people with power, with wealth at the top. And, you know, the little guy, um, little guys and gals and, and familias are, are really getting the brunt of this. And it's just, it's just so unfair. Yeah. So we, the people that we mostly spoke to for this story um, were black and brown, right? Because in Chicago, um, black and brown folks, specifically black communities, evictions get filed in black communities at significantly higher rates than any other part of the city, right? Like black, like landlords are re really use eviction as a tool to to displace black people um, specifically. Um, and then I think outside of the confines of the law, the, then we hear those stories of like immigrant communities being displaced through like threats. Mm -hmm. 
would love to hear from you like one or two stories to highlight just to give people a glimpse into what some of the what some of the the stories um uh make up the, this piece uh, yeah looking at looking through the article and seeing quote cards that you've highlighted these pull quotes from mm-hmm. these article uh, articles um you know there was one that uh one quote that uh had said you know i, I just received this phone call saying that they were going to come and kill me and my family if I didn't get them the money. Like talk about mob tactics. Like that is like, that's some mafioso stuff. Um, Don't have to highlight that story specifically, but you know, what, what are like one or two stories that you can give uh, our listeners? Yeah, I can talk about that story. The, the person in that story, we changed um, her name. We called her, I believe Sandra in the story. Mm -hmm. Um, and she was working at Dunkin' Donuts. She was one of the the women that I was talking about that worked at Dunkin' Donuts. Her husband um, is undocumented. They have three kids. Um, and so when the pandemic hit, she her husband lost his job um, or the work that he was doing. And her hours at Dunkin' Donuts got cut, right? Like she didn't lose her job at Dunkin' Donuts. But this is how I think like her story really represented just like how like strapped people are right that like a few hours in your day being cut can actually like destabilize your entire family right like the like send you into like a a a cycle of poverty right and so she stopped being able to pay her rent and was trying to work it out with her landlord um but he was just like not trying to hear it and then um after i think i forget the time span of like how many months she missed the rent she started getting, or her husband got a phone call talking about like a voicemail saying, you know, if you don't pay your rent, we're going to kill you. And then she got one. And then her 17 year old son got one as well. And I think like when her son got it, it was like when she was like, okay, like this is like, it's not a joke, you know, it's not funny. Um, and it's not, and she managed to make the point of like, you really don't know if they're like actually being serious or not. You know, you really, she didn't really want to take that chance. So they, like a lot of the families that we spoke with who were this place moved really fast. Like they moved in with her sister-in-law and like that put a lot of strain on like their familial um, dynamics because like her sister-in-law was sort of like now had this family of five living with them in like a small apartment Mm -hmm. during a global pandemic where we were supposed to be keeping our distance. And the sister-in-law was also sort of like struggling to get by. And it just sort of like put, like when we evict people, their eviction is a very traumatic experience, right? It's a very traumatic and violent experience. I think we typically think of eviction as like a symptom of poverty, right? Like eviction happens because people are poor. When in actuality, people are poor because oftentimes they've been evicted, right? Mm-hmm. And so eviction in a lot of ways drives poverty. It creates poverty. It throws families into cycles of poverty. And it also has a ripple effect, right? Like it wasn't just Sandra who was evicted, right? Her kids who were doing e-learning were also evicted that disrupts like their their learning, that disrupts their development, that puts a lot of pressure on them in in a in a in an already sort of like high stress environment. Um and she her story is really heartbreaking in a lot of way because her son had been working at Domino's. Um and he like throughout before the pandemic he was saving like his money from working at Domino's, saving birthday money. And he eventually like had enough in his savings to give the family, to be able to give the family like a, a first month's rent and a security deposit. And so they were able eventually to find stable housing, but um, yeah, they had to go through all of that. And again, she left 
another thing that happens that's common in eviction is when people leave, they leave like valuable things, right? Like they leave couches, they leave refrigerators, they leave things that like have taken them years to come up with and to, to, to buy it. When Sandra spoke to um, one of our reporters, she said, you know, I have like three dishes in my home. I have like three dishes and like two chairs and like we're sleeping on the couch. My kids don't have jackets. You know what I mean? Like this is sort of like the, what people are forced um, to experience. Um, and I and I don't think people realize like the ripple effects that like eviction has. And it, and if you are not someone that is facing eviction, if you are not someone who's like susceptible to eviction, if you're somebody with a lot of disposable income, like eviction doesn't just destabilize individual families, like it destabilizes entire communities, right? Like the fabric of communities are sort of torn apart um, in in when families are displaced. And I think like if you're someone who really loves Chicago, if you're someone who really um, yeah, just really loves this city. Like you should care about this, right? Because these are your neighbors, these are your community. And like, what is Chicago gonna look like when all of this is over, right? Like yeah. you really, we really need to sort of like grapple with that and like really demand that like our city be better after this. That like, maybe it's not happening to me, but like it's happening to my home. Like mm -hmm. Chicago's my home, I love this city. And and I think that's why people really should care about it. But that was one of the stories that that stood out to me. Another one was um, actually Justin. Could I, if I can interrupt you for for a go quick ahead, second for, for Sandra's story? You know, um, reading that uh, it reminded me of the amount and what you were saying. You know, it reminds me of the amount of layers that go into mm -hmm. finding a new home. Like mm -hmm. in Sandra's case, I don't know a lot about I don't know a lot about Sandra personally, but if she takes public transportation to work every day, uh, does not own a vehicle. You know, to your point, um, you know, amassing uh, things like furniture, dishware over time. Like if you get evicted and you're not getting any income and now you have to move, well, you can't exactly, you don't have a car. How are you going to load up all your stuff to take with you? Now you have to find money to get a mover and movers are expensive or you right. have, to have money to uh, rent a car, but then you have to have proof of insurance, proof of insurance. Mm -hmm. You have to have that with a car. If you don't have a car, you don't have proof of insurance. Yeah. How are you gonna how are you gonna rent a vehicle like a U-Haul van or a U-Haul truck to move your stuff? So mm -hmm. roadblock, right? Um, and a lot of the and a lot of the houses in Chicago being as old as they are and needing to get upgrades or substantial upgrades uh, to make it a more equitable property for the various tenants living there. In Sandra's case, she had mentioned that both the light and the gas were connected to a basement unit and that the landlord never gave her money for that. So yep. on top of having to make rent month to month, um, she's also having to foot the bill for a, um, a unit that she's not even living in. So it right. just it just all compounds on one another. And I know when you know my wife and I are blessed enough now to to have a home of our own home of our own. Um, but uh, when we were renting and jumping from spot to spot, we'd have landlords that would ask us for our job history for pay stubs to show that yep. we could actually pay that rent. So if you're not having, if you don't have mm -hmm. money coming in, you don't have a pay stub, a recent pay stub or two to show a landlord that's already blocking you out from a large a large part of the available units in the city. Not to mention that we're, we're already seeing an exodus of Latina and black people uh, from the city right. of Chicago. And I wanna be clear too, when I say, when I talk about like Puerto Rican, especially like we have, we're black as well. Like we have black indigenous European roots. We're not just, 
you know, European or not just indigenous or not just black. Like there's a, there's a, a mix there. Um, so it, it's, this eviction crisis is almost like an attack on, on all of us. It is an attack on all of us, uh, especially communities of color, uh, poor working class white folk. Um, and yeah, uh, again, just seeing the, reading these stories is just really heartbreaking and just wanted to make that point yeah. that, uh, to, that you sparked when you, when you were, when you were answering my earlier question that this is such a, a layered and nuanced process. Mm -hmm. And I don't think people really put this into the full give this the full gravity it needs. Um, right. Um, unless they've like been in it and had to like really see the, the, the tough parts of trying to relocate or just find a nice unit to rent. That's not going to put yourself or your children, uh, in harm's way. Cause a lot of these housing units and all these landlords, uh, I'm sorry, like all these landlords probably should never deserve to even own a property the way they upkeep their, their property. Um, it's like, robbery. yeah. That's actually, I'm glad you mentioned that because a big theme in all, all of these stories is um, the conditions of their apartment. Like a lot of folks dealing with like black mold, a lot of folks with like deteriorating apartments that were like, and the landlord was still coming every month to collect their $800. And it's like, right. you are literally charging people $800 to live in a place with the, uh, the ceiling caving in, mm -hmm. there's mold, it's causing them respiratory issues. The bathtub water is running brown. You refuse to repair anything. Like repairs were such a such a such a huge problem in, in each of these stories. It was like each of these people had essentially were overpaying for rent, right? And it was kind of like it's just kind of like the irony of like you're gonna evict me because I can't pay for rent, but I've been overpaying you for rent for like over a year. You know what I'm saying? And and, and now all of a sudden I can't pay this. Now you you want to kick me out? Um, yeah. So repairs is a huge issue, and there really is no sort of infrastructure to sort of like i think like because of like property laws and i like in in like america like our ideas of property of private property being so um sacred and like sanctified and like don't tell anybody it's kind of like you know how people say like don't tell anybody what to do with their kids like you can't tell nobody how they're doing with their kids you also can't really tell people in this country like what to do with their property either right like mm -hmm. and, and in a lot of ways it's kind of like that like these landlords like they get i feel like the conditions of a lot of these apartments is just sort of like so egregiously horrible and there's like really no infrastructure to really um like deal with that or like deal with or like hold landlords to a better standard of providing people an actual like livable unit um so yeah that was a huge yeah. Go ahead. yeah yeah no no i, I was i was just gonna add to that that um um yeah I, I think the mentality has to shift amongst our landlord population uh because whether they like to like to admit it or not or whether they they like to uh be told or not they're providing a service to their tenants mm -hmm. the tenants are their clients the the they they're there to serve them that's why the tenants mm -hmm. are paying them for that service it's not the other way around the tenants aren't serving the landlords the landlord is providing a service and a lot of these landlords look at it as take 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 and there's no give like you should just be happy i'm giving you four walls and a roof right? and a ceiling right you know what i mean and that's that is just such a warped way of looking at that dynamic and a warped way to your point like some of these some of these landlords look at it as a business and it's just People are not people are not commodities. People are not property. Like there, there is a human dynamic here that just gets so overlooked. 
Um, but I'm getting on a soapbox yeah. here with this, Justin. I, I do want to let's let's talk about this other story. <laughs> we're like, we're gonna like we could like we could go for an hour on this. Um, but you know, what, what's, what's another, we're gonna share another story before I interrupted you. Yeah, another story is that I think really stands out in that piece is maybe the story of Tisha, who's a black woman who has I can't remember off the top of my head how many kids she has, um, maybe five kids. But she moved into an apartment early 2020 with um, her then partner. Um, and then immediately asked, she moved in about like February and then like immediately after moving in, um, she, he was, you know, she content warning, this is, you know, I'm about to talk about some abuse, but she, um, yeah, he, she, he starts beating her, her partner. And he sends her to the hospital at one point and she, you know, presses charges. He gets locked up. When she comes back out of the hospital, she loses her job. She was working at Sharks um, Chicken in like Indiana. I'm with community and was commuting every day. Um, she loses her job because she's telling me like my face was so, you know, swollen, so messed up, I couldn't go to work. And that she told her boss, she showed him proof. And like, he still was like, sorry, like you didn't come to work for X amount of days you're gone so then she told her landlord like hey I lost my job because of you know this experience and now I can't really find a job because COVID's happening no one's looking you know there's no work um so like can you like work with me and he was like yeah I'm gonna work with you I'm gonna work with you we're gonna figure it out um filed an eviction against her of course um knowing that she's like a, a single mom now who's a survivor of domestic violence who um, it's just sort of like having, it's sort of like down on her luck in so many different ways, found the eviction. And then he starts to do, according to her, he starts to do like very creepy things, right? And this is like, this is like what a lot of women, I think, who are like single mothers who are, who are renting from landlords who are men, they also have a layer of like the, the, the power dynamic between like men and women. And then you add a layer of like race in there, like her being a black woman with kids. And like the power dynamics just being so, he started doing strange things. Like one day she woke up to him in her apartment, like in her, literally in her living room. And was and she's like, why are you in my living room? And he's like, oh, I came to serve you your five-day notice. And I gave her her five-day notice. And she was like, you could have like left this on my door. You know what I'm saying? And like, then he left. Um, he did another thing where like he started shutting off her like lights, started shutting off her utilities. And she was constantly having to like, call 311 on this guy. And then uh, eventually she like went to go, uh, her friend was having a baby. She like went to like go see her in the hospital. She comes back home and the apartment building is on fire, like legit on fire. And then um, she said, she thinks she's like, I don't know. They said that like a, a cigarette started the fire, but she's kind of like, did this guy like burn his apartment to get me out? Which is not uncommon. Like, like um, arson for profit in Chicago, especially in Uptown, there's like a history of that. Like, like landlords burning properties to like get people out, you know, to displace people, which I don't know. I'm not making claims. I'm not saying that that is exactly what happened. But according to her, she's like, this is too like sketchy. It's like too coincidental that like, you're doing this to me for months. And then all of a sudden my apartment's like on fire. Um, so she had to go double up with her mom um and that story was just it was just really heartbreaking it's just really all of this is just to say that like this is what in like a neoliberal ass society that like you know 
that prioritizes property and profit over people, um, this is like what people have to go to, right? Like nothing in these stories that I, in these stories are actually new, right? Like if you're a poor person in Chicago, you either have experienced this yourself or you know somebody who has and you have witnessed this. And this is just sort of like, you know, capitalism in crisis, right? Like in, in like, this is really, I think we, what we need to really think, well, I think what, what I would hope people take from this project is like, okay, this may not be new, but like, I feel like our responses can be new, right? Like our responses can change. And like, um, sure, this is an ongoing crisis. And I do think that people need to see these stories, um, but I also hope that people really start to think of like, okay, like this shit has gone on too long. Like, what do we do now? What are some, you know, what are some solutions? How can people get help if they're facing eviction? You can um, actually look up to see if you have um, been filed against. And I think the Cook County um, clerk's website has a tool for you to search your name and you can see if you've been filed against, if you think that you've been filed against. Um, another thing is if you know that you are about to face eviction or if you know that you're falling behind on rent, um, you always want to like open up a, a line of communication with your landlord, right? That That is not a guarantee. Like your landlord could be like, I don't care. But you always want to get things in writing, um, make sure that, you know, there is very clear correspondence between you and your landlord and you letting them know that like, hey, I've, I've lost work. Um, you should always reach out. There's like legal services that I don't know if a lot of people are aware of, like free legal aid, like the Lawyers Committee for Better Housing, um, Legal Aid Chicago, the, what is it, the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, uh, the Metropolitan Tenants Organization, like all of these sort of legal, they can provide you with like a lot better legal advice than I could as a journalist. Um, so I would, I would encourage people, like if you feel like you're about to, if you feel like you're in a position where you could be evicted, reach out to like a lawyer or a legal aid service that often will provide um, help for free. Um, and the city does have some rental assistance coming. Um, we don't know when yet. It's not a, really a ballpark, but there, you know, the, the last stimulus that was passed in December, there was a lot of money allocated for rental aid. I think Illinois is getting something like $830 million um, for rental aid. Um, and so those grants are going to open up again. Um, so I would encourage people to be looking out for those um, as well. And really, uh, there is also power with like organizing with your with your neighbors, right? Of like uh, forming tenants unions or like getting your neighbor if your neighbors are also struggling, like coming together and like trying to collectively work out a deal with your landlord can also be, I think, powerful for people. I think at the more policy level, Chicago is sort of like the only thing Chicago can really do, or the, like the major tool that Chicago has to keep people in place, is like rental assistance because we have such a strong ban on rent control. Like the city can't freeze rents, right? Like the city has no power at all to like freeze rents or control rents because of our strict ban on rent control. So I would encourage people to really, um, yeah, to, to, to look at like, look at the ban on rent control, think about is this something that we should have and then really put some political pressure on folks to sort of like repeal that ban if that is like what, what, you, what you think you should be doing, which I personally, I think, let me not anyway <laughs> let me not let me not take some people right let me not take some people. no uh but yeah those are those are some options um yeah and also um there's a lot of mutual aid too like um looking at like humble park solidarity network is a mutual aid project in in humble park 
that does some cash assistance. They do food deliveries to, to folks in Humboldt Park um, and the surrounding areas. Um, so looking up like mutual aid projects as well is could be a way to sort of alleviate some of the, the financial pressures that the pandemic has placed on you. We're going to take a quick pause for the cause, pero no se muevan, porque when we come back, we're going to put Justin in the hot seat with some rapid fire listener questions, and we're going to also see what he is most obsessed with today. Stay with us. We want to take this moment to say thank you again for listening. When you download our podcast or subscribe to the podcast itself, that makes a world of difference. So gracias for taking your time to listen to us. We also want to take this time to thank the sponsor of today's episode. This episode would not be possible without the generous support of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center. The Puerto Rican Cultural Center, located at 2546 West Division Street, right here in Chicago, is a community-based grassroots educational health and cultural services organization founded on the principles of self-determination, self-actualization, and self-sufficiency that is all activist-oriented. For more information on the work they do, give them a visit at their website at prcc-chgo.org. Again, that's prcc-chgo.org. Now, if you or anyone else you know would like to be a sponsor of the Paseo Podcast, please email us at paseopod at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-E-O-P-O-D at gmail.com. Tell them Joshua from Humble Park sent you. want to transition a little bit into some lighter stuff as we wrap up our time together here, Justin. Um, you are going to go through. <laughs> I, people listening, I gave Justin fair warning. We like introduced like this lightning round of just like lighter questions to, to wrap up our time with our guests. So uh, might take Justin by surprise at some of these, but we're going we're gonna to put him through the ringer here, everybody. So Justin, are you ready for this lightning round of questions? Yeah, let's okay. do it. All right. <laughs> All right, you're not seen. Here we go. I'm on, um, I'm on. Go ahead. What? Oh, no. I'm like, watch me be shady as hell. No. I'm going to try to turn my shade down. So go ahead. Turn the shade down. Yeah, no, you can turn it up. Whatever. It's, you know, it's good. Um, uh, so, okay. First question. Um, besides City Bureau, what is one publication you love to re report for or have a byline in? Oh, that's a good question, actually. Um, we ask the hard-hitting questions here on the Paseo podcast, so... <laughs> I see. Um, <laughs> I would love to report for... I really love what Justice Watch does, um, like, putting the, the, the pressure on, like, judges, for example, and, like, police. I really love the work that they do. Um, I really love the tribe i would love to get a, a byline in the tribe which is sort of um telling stories about like black chicago millennial black millennial chicago in a lot of ways uh, i'm not black but i would love you know they take pictures from i think um 
all races. And then who else do I really love in this city? I would love to, I don't know, like the sun, I don't know. Those are, I'll just say those two, yeah. All right, those are good, those are good. Okay, um, <laughs> while we're on the topic of journalism, uh, what is one journalist you admire? Oh my God, I'm so bad at admiring journalists. <laughs> I'm so you can bad just at say yourself. No, I, no, just kidding. Uh, no, see, no shade. There are a lot of great, great, great journalists in Chicago that I think do really, really um, dope work. I think in terms of housing, um, Natalie Moore at, at BZ, she was actually one of my teachers in grad school. Um, she wrote the book um, Southside, which is a really, really, really great book about the history of the Southside in Chicago. And she just won like a, um, a U.S. artist grant. It was like her reviewing like a bunch of folks um, that wrote that won this really prestigious award. And so I would say she's a really she does audio reporting, but like her writing is like really, really beautiful and like really like clear and crisp. And so, yeah, she's she's definitely gold for sure. Right on. OK, um, next question. So um, we were. Uh... We were ch we were trading uh, Twitter replies on this tweet earlier, and I won't say the tweet. <laughs> I won't say the tweet. We were He's talking to about. No, 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 no. I won't say the He's tweet. He's trying to get me you're dragged. Good. You're good. He's trying to get me dragged back. No, 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 no. But we were talking about Puerto Rican restaurants. Just curious to uh -huh, hear from you. Uh -huh. What is your favorite Puerto Rican restaurant in Chicago? Um, my favorite Puerto Rican restaurant. Um, I feel like it changes. I really do. I'm gonna steal Rosana's Rosana's answer to say <laughs> Casa Yari. I do love Casa Yari. Like their mofongo is like fire. Point. Um, I do love Baba Caches on Division. Mm -hmm. Um, their their like roasted chicken and their um, Chivarito sandwiches. Um, where else is like a really dope fire Puerto Rican spot? Um, I live in Pilsen. And the Hibarito stop is in Pilsen. And it's like the one, it's like the closest place that I could get Puerto Rican food. Um, and so I really, yeah, I really love them too. So I'll say those three. Is that one on, uh, in Pilsen, that's on 18th Street, right? Yeah, it's like, yeah, right before the Pink Line or right yeah, after, yeah. depending. Which, yeah. Right on. I got to check in with them because I, I thought I saw a report that they may, have, they may have been on the verge of closing or maybe closing. Um, yeah. The yeah. Oh, but they were they're good. good now, I think. Oh, yeah, okay, they're good. 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 Yeah. The times I've gone there, I was like, wow, first off, how did a Puerto Rican restaurant end up in Pilsen? And I was like, what's your story? Like, tell me, how'd you migrate here? Um, sure. but very good. I mean, really good food. Um, okay. It's just silly. I feel like there should be more Puerto Rican. I mean, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. The same way we love Mexican food. I think, you know, Mexican right. folks and like other love Puerto Rican food. I'm like, come on, let's like. Let's like diversify some of these restaurants. No, bit. you're so right, especially when we're talking about over two hundred thousand Boricuas here in the state. Right. Like, we we should really have some more options. Um, it was funny we interviewed um we interviewed Naomi Bonafu. She's a part of London's Puerto Rican diaspora, and I asked her, you know, what are what are some Puerto? Oh, it, could be, wow. it could be worse. It could be worse though, because I asked her, you know, what's a what's a good Puerto Rican joint to get some food at in London if I'm ever in the UK, and she said there aren't any. We found, yeah, we no. found, we meet at one Dominican restaurant. Hey. <laughs> She's like, there's like seven of us in the diaspora here. So we yeah. don't really have a lot of options. And I was like, okay, yeah. once the pandemic is I, done, come to Paseo Boricua. We got a, we got a good roster of joints <laughs> you could go to. 
Um, I I studied abroad in London, and I can confirm that that yeah. is fact. There are no Puerto Rican restaurants out there. Like, there's barely any Mexican food out there. It's like a lot. There's some like yeah. South American food though, like Colombian. And, yeah. What is one thing you are obsessed with right now? Now it could be related to Puerto Rican culture. It could not be. Um, we are a diverse group of people, so we don't just have to like things related to Puerto Rican culture, um, but like any movies, books, music, TV shows, uh, books, whatever, you know, what's something you're obsessed with right now? Um, something I'm obsessed with, is it cliche to say RuPaul's Drag Race? No, <laughs> is it's that not. Just like not. Is that just like not, is that just like such a like cis gay thing to say? <laughs> um, <laughs> like, of course, these cis gays would love for Drag Race. No, I really... A, RuPaul's like, problematic and we can get into that some other time, but this season's like really, really fun. And I've been, um, look, there's not much to look forward to in quarantine. I feel like just staying home all day, I do the same, like every day is the same, but like Fridays, it's a good like escape from the shit show that is, you know, this country every day. Um, so yeah, I'm really obsessed with Drag Race right now. In terms of a book that I'm reading, I'm reading um, All About Love by Bell Hooks which is um it's kind of self-helpy if you know bell hooks is like a feminist scholar like it's mm-hmm. very like self-helpy the book you're reading it mm-hmm. all about love yeah you yeah, like yeah. it oh yeah oh my gosh uh i can't tell you how many times and i don't like i i don't know what it is like the older i get justin the more i'm the more my likelihood of crying when watching and reading things yeah. has increased. so like uh-huh. there's been a number of moments where like my eyes have, have swelled up reading this book um my wife is yeah. much deeper into it than i am she's reading it with her her mother um so i'm much more behind than she is but like right and it's been out for there- a while too so anyway i mean if people yeah. listening haven't heard of this book i mean bell hooks is is the all jam of- i mean yeah all about love yeah, it'll have you thinking about your own childhood. Like, the, yeah. there's a section where she's like, um, harm and love can't coexist. And so, like, you know, when our parents tell us this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you or, like, our parents beat us, you know, like, whatever. And so there's, like, some hard truths that, like, mm-hmm. she's going to, like, throw in your face that I think you it, – it's a good read for sure. Awesome. Good choices. Good choices. Um, okay, Justin, you shared this on episode 36 <laughs> of the podcast on how people can keep up with you, but let's do it one more time for the people in the back. Um, how can people, how can our listeners keep up with you? Social media, website, reporting, what have you, throw it all out there. What do we need to know? Yeah, I finally made a website and it's justinagrello.com. Yay. It has like my, like, has my 10 clips on there, my 10 stories. Nah, I have a, there's a little bit more than 10, but... <laughs> I'm a slow ass writer, so you know I don't really be tweeting about much. I just be tweeting about like just the the thoughts that run in my head. Uh, but you can follow me on Twitter if you want some random ass tweets on your timeline um, at jstnagrlo. Um, and yeah, my website is justinagrlo.com, which is literally just like a list of my stories um, and a link to my Twitter too. Right on. All right, Justin Aguilo, so, thank you so much for well, being on the podcast. Thank you so much, Josh. Oh, thank you. you Thanks a lot. Thanks to Justin Agrello from City Bureau for being on the show today. As a reminder, you can watch our interview with Justin on our YouTube channel this Monday. Just type in Basel Podcast and we'll pop right up. Uh, you can also listen to our first interview with Justin a few episodes back if you want to learn more about him and his journey through journalism as a person of color, as a Boricua. 
uh, highly recommend uh, you go back in and definitely listen to that one if you liked what you heard today. For next week, we're going to interview Dr. Melissa Lewis. She is the principal of Dr. Pedro Albizu Campos Puerto Rican High School. And we're going to talk to her about her journey through education as a woman of color, Dr. Pedro Albizu Campos himself, what it's been like to lead a high school during a global pandemic, and a whole lot more. Also, if you want to pitch a story idea, nominate yourself or someone else for an interview, or share a news story you'd like us to discuss in the show, visit our website, baseomedia.org, to do just that. See you next week. Without our awesome guests, this podcast would not be possible. And without you, our listeners, this would not be possible. So we really appreciate you listening. If you want to reach out to the show, connect with us by visiting our website, baseomedia.org emailing us at baseopodcast at gmail.com and following us at baseopodcast on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a tip, want to pitch a story, or send us a compliment, we love to hear from you. Thanks for downloading this episode and see you next week. Cuídate.